Welcome to It's Mercedes, honest conversations for freedom-minded women. I'm your host, Mercedes, founder of Libertas Sisters. In every episode, I invite a guest to discuss topics such as femininity, relationships, the culture war, self-reliance, politics, and freedom. And let's be honest, whatever else I'm in the mood for. So pop in those headphones, pour yourself a beverage, and settle in. Let's get this episode started. Let me ask you this. Is this an SOF PSYOPs veteran? Is that correct? Or how do you... Yeah. SOF stands for Special Operations Forces. So it is a section of the military that every service has that you have special assessment selection and training to be a part of this very niche, small, um, some would say, some would say elite community. Right. Okay. Cause I saw that in your bio. <laughs> I want to welcome today, Captain Emily Rainey an SOF PSYOPs veteran. She is decorated. She's educated. I really don't have, uh, don't want to suck up a whole lot of time given all of your accolades and everything that you've accomplished. And if you Google her name, she's also known as the infamous North Carolina Armory captain that was investigated for leading a group to January 6th. You were an architect, you were a dangerous individual, and um, that's what you'll find if you Google her name. However, I wanted to invite her on so she can share her story because I think you were on a gag order for a while, weren't you? I was for six months from January until I resigned my commission in June. I was under a complete gag order by the military. The constitutional... Uh, relevance and legality of all of that is um, it's questionable. You know, very, <laughs> but they held my honorable discharge in the balance, and so, so you did have an honorable discharge. Is that correct? I I was honorably discharged because, of course, I am guilty of no crime and also no regulation violation. Okay, so, so- it's interesting to see how the media took it and how kind of popular culture has spun all of it since then. But well, we'll yeah, because that was one of the first things I saw you initially um, because you were on uh, Tucker Carlson's Carlson's. I always kind of get tongue tied with his name. I don't know why Um, documentary Patriot Purge. And then you reached out to me on DM and that's how I kind of put the two and two together. And of course, like with every interview that I do, I do a little bit of search. I was already semi-familiar with you, but I went to go look for more information. And I noticed that almost all the articles are very concentrated within the week following uh, the January 6th uh, Capitol rally or riots, depending on who you talk to. Um <laughs> And that they really focused in on uh, the fact that you were a psyops captain, and that you took a hundred people to the capital, and also I guess something that happened at a playground. And these mm-hmm. three things specifically seem to have been tied together. To um, I don't know if it, some of the some of the articles were very specific in saying like you know they would use their adverb their their verbs to kind of color the story and some of them would just give the information to guide you into a conclusion so mm-hmm. initially how was it that that story broke because there was like there was a ton of people at the capitol there was a ton of people at these riots or these rallies um which I think there's a difference. There's the riot that happened up at the Capitol. And then there was the the rally that happened. Um, and even for those that went into the Capitol, some of them weren't technically rioting, but we'll get into that at, mm-hmm. probably down the road. How was it that your, your story specifically got into the news? Well, first of all, I'm going to say, I just want to say thank you for having me on because your community of women that you're building here is so awesome. Um, as a woman in kind of a man's career field for the last 10 years, um, having these, you know, spaces where women can come together and talk about all things feminine and things that are relevant to us is so important. And, um, the question that you just asked about how all of this got started is the one question that no one asks and is the most interesting to me, um, because it is, um, really, um, amazing how the way the media is, owned and operated now because, you know, certain outlets have this pull and this power 
that really creates this uh, mockingbird effect with all others. So I'll tell you, it all started because um, on January 6th, first of all, I lead a conservative activist nonpartisan group in my county. The group's called More County Citizens for Freedom. It's about 2,000 members at the time of January 6th. Um, I chartered two buses so that a hundred of us could go and attend the January 6th election integrity rally in DC. So after that day, which for my group anyway, um, very uplifting, we'll get into the details of it, but passed by with no major event as in no one that I went with. We all, we all, returned home as innocently as we arrived. Let's just put it that way. Um, we, you know, we didn't hear anything. There was nothing particular for a couple of days, but then Josh Stein, who is the North Carolina um, attorney general, he gets on his Facebook and he posted, I think it was on like January 9th or 10th. He posted that he wanted North Carolinians, state where I live, to report on each other for who was an attendance, not like send my office proof of criminal activity. It was report who are in attendance. And I'm reading hundreds and hundreds of comments that were absolutely heartbreaking of my North Carolinian brethren reporting attendance. So-and-so is a, is a teacher for this County, you know, this school district. So-and-so, um, is a bus driver and was moonlighting and drove people's, uh, bus of people up there. Um, just mostly focused on state employees. Cause of course that's where Josh Stein could kind of sick his, you know, North Carolina state bureau of investigation on them, uh-huh. you know, and really can affect their lives. Cause if they're state employees, And I was sickened. So I get on there and I say, you know, Josh Stein, I led a hundred members of Moore County to the rally. Um, There were, you know, a million of us there. Your witch hunt is evil. Your government is corrupt. Basically saying, come find me. So you outed yourself. I outed myself because I have no regrets. I'm incredibly proud to have been there. I don't care how many people want to spin the story or take steps back and say like an Heisman saying like, I'm not with them. I'm not with those kind of conservatives. I'm not with those kind of Republicans or Patriots. I'm someone else, you know, I'm that's them. Don't, don't attack me. Right. So that's what happened in the days following January 6th. And since, um, so Josh Stein didn't, didn't find me, but the associated press did. And one article from the Associated Press led to the story going international overnight. And I and I mean overnight. Um, somehow an Associated Press reporter got my number. I'm sure it's not hard. Called me on Sunday as I was walking into church, actually. Um, and did an article, which was then like copycatted and picked up. And, and it went absolutely international. I mean, the New Zealand Herald called me the architect of the January 6th insurrection. The Jewish journal said that I led 100 well-armed trained military members to the Capitol. I mean, couldn't be further from the truth. So I think the average age of my bus, my bus was about, you know, 65 old ladies in, in tennis shoes, not a single active duty military member on the That bus. was the other thing. I think that was also investigated, right? It was. Yeah. That was one of the things I was under investigation for. That's right. So it's interesting that you point that because I remember quickly following that, that there was a kind of culture in the sense of people reporting either family members or friends or coworkers just in general throughout the country um, where they, if either reporting them to, I think one state, I can't even remember had a hotline or maybe I'm confusing that with something else. So let me not get um, distracted with that. But there was a lot of just like an energy of reporting people that went just in attendance to the rally because it wasn't specifically that they even showed up on some video that was released after 
the riots happened or after people got into the Capitol, it was just anybody who was merely in attendance was also getting caught up into that. And it's interesting that you mentioned that your story got picked up by uh, the AP because I actually had a guest on not too long ago where we talked about the state of journalism and the media. And that was basically one of the things that she touched on is how uh, Rutgers and AP here in the United States are the two primary newswires. And that if some one of them has a story because of the way that news is structured right now, everybody just grabs the story and then adds their their spin their verbiage their adjectives to it or in my case in my case insinuation so these people journalism journalists aren't aren't um you know what they used to be in the terms of critically thinking and investigating what they are they've become rather experts at telling lies without it being legally liable and so that was the case that was the case with me i mean it was they were Everything was perfectly worded so that the reader got a, a specific message without there being any kind of legal case to any take. Any specific ask you, accusation on you that you can come at them for defamation or something like that. Because right. I believe the purpose is like if it's news and you report it, if you report it um, with intention of defamation, then they can get into the tr- into trouble. Although a lot of times what they'll say is like, I just made a mistake and then issue a correction and it wasn't really defamation. But yeah, there was like- And the corrections uh, at like the bottom of an unrelated news story. <laughs> that doesn't and get picked tiny, up nearly. In yeah. tiny print, right, exactly. <laughs> and there were some retractions with me, but it doesn't matter. The, da- the damage is done. If it's possible to do damage against somebody who just makes the choice not to be cancelable, then the damage is done. Yeah. So when you, cause you organized a group of people to go to the rally, what can you just kind of tell us a little bit of the story of that day? Because a lot of people who weren't there in attendance, of course, have an image of how it went. Don't have a complete, especially people who have never been to DC. I don't think I lived in Washington, DC in the early two thousands. I don't think people necessarily have a concept of, for example, how, big the capital is how big or the distance like of the national mm. mall to the capital and how everything went so if you can kind of give us a little um a, a synopsis on how your day went for sure so um i completely agree with you that dc could be kind of overwhelming and confusing and a lot of what happened on january 6th the the devil is in the details the details of the distances as you mentioned Um, And that is actually exactly why I organized these two buses. I'm from a fairly rural county in North Carolina. It's a six and a half hour drive to D.C. Um, It's it's kind of, you know, intimidating for people to go there, especially when the mayor is shutting down um, metros and roads and nobody really knows where they're going to be able to park. And then in November and, and December rallies. Because remember, this January 6th was the, the final of three large rallies, one per month, November, December, and then January. Which I don't think a lot of people even know that, that there was there was a few other rallies before that that had really no incidents, um, except they did. Antifa was rather violent, right? The, the Antifa's presence was very um, damaging and um, deliberate and violent. And, um, I actually attended the November one. I booked, I chartered one bus of 50 people to the December one. So I'm an old hand by the time the January one rolls around. I've done this many times. I have a lot of experience, especially in my job in special operations. We do a lot with interagency in DC. And so I know the Metro, I know the, you know, the, the district. And, yeah, exactly. So I, I took on kind of role as tour guide and wanted to enable others to experience the empowerment and the um, just the, the uplifting spirit that you get when you go to a rally where, um, you know, you see that you're not alone. We've been purposefully cut off from each other throughout the pandemic. And as conservatives who are constantly censored, there's a, there's always this question in in your mind about like how many others out there you know are there out yeah. there am i wrong am i crazy 
is this person not going to talk to me anymore? So then you end up not saying stuff. Yeah. Are we the silent majority truly like, or are we just telling ourselves that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I really wanted to give other people that same feeling. And after all of 2020, just getting beat down after, you know, lockdown rally after protest, you know, the masking and all the rest of it, uh, you just needed a, a win. And even just to be around other people that can lift you up like that. Um, and so that's what I, that's why I did it. It's, you know, going to DC was for our hearts and our, you know, souls. It was, it wasn't, um, and it, of course, to make a statement, of course, to show our numbers, but not for any other specific intents. Like there was no like plan for any other thing um, upon arrival, but yeah. Cause there's been a big focus on the, like what, and I was going to ask you that, like, what was the purpose of you being there? Like, why did you decide to go there? Because a lot of times the focus um, that comes out of the media is that the intention was insurrection, that the intention was, you know, a, a complete disruption, an attack on democracy. And I can't speak to the intentions of every single individual that went to the, to the rally. Like you, it's just impossible in any kind of large organization or, um, like meetup or anything like that. You can't peg the intention of every single individual, but for yourself and the group that you took, um, or that you organized to go there, what was the real reason or the purpose that it was there? Was it just to camaraderie, but did you have any camaraderie kind of agenda? <laughs> no, no agenda. I mean, it's not like we thought we wanted to hear the speakers because that's another thing. Um, oh, so many things have been gotten wrong about this day. And I'm not going to get into, unless you ask and want me to, but that could be a really long conversation, um, into the false flag stuff and all of the stuff that the, um, that, uh, revolver has been, the revolver news has been highlighting the investigative journalism done about, you know, FBI plants and all of that, because I can read about it, but I can only, but I think what your listeners want to hear about is what I actually saw and what is real about that day from a first person point of view at someone who had been to the November rally, December rally and January one, because the differences between the three are really important to highlight. And, um, that whole Antifa presence thing, that's a real thing that people have kind of stopped talking about. But um, just a quick touch on it. In November, the Antifa presence was apparent and um, not overly large, like a few hundred all, you know, in, in blackout um, in the colors, black block. yeah, black block and Ironically, they were all hiding behind a police line. The police are standing in front, protecting them because they're clearly the minority majorly. Um, but just to give you a, a, a little sense of what the differences between these groups of people, the, the, the MAGA hat wearing Patriot and the black block behind the police line. In the November rally, I went with my family didn't bring any, didn't chart any buses. It was just my family. And there was the Antifa were chanting, um, all sorts of obscenities to our side of the police line. And I'm fairly close to it. So I, I could tell, I could, we could hear what they were saying. And one, um, of the louder Antifa members with a bullhorn said that they were going to kill our children and drink their blood. And the Patriots I'm laughing because shocked. it's just like, it's so deranged. Right. Yeah. And, and of course, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're really going to do that or that they met, were saying they're going to really do that, but they definitely wanted to get a rise out of yeah. our side. And so on our side, some loud, uh, man started yelling F Antifa and started getting a chant going to try to get people to say that. And then another man stepped forward and said, no, let's pray for them. And hundreds of people dropped to their knees and started praying for Antifa as they're saying that they want to drink our children's blood. I mean, I literally teared up in that moment. I mean, I was like, I'm holding my son who's two, who's two on a, in a, like a backpack, you know, uh -huh. 
And, um, and, and that was such a stark little vignette to show this, the type of people who are in this MAGA crowd that have been so demonized now. Um, in December, um, Antifa got more violent. And so when January rolled around and the news can show you what exactly happened there, um, of course, they probably tried to turn it on um, some of the groups like the three percenters or whatever. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how the media spun it, but I'm sure it wasn't actually telling the truth about Antifa chasing down mothers, pushing their strollers and Antifa knocking over old men and beating them to a pulp. But that's what happened in December. So in January, I was not overly excited about being in charge of a hundred people. I mean, keep this in mind. I'm an army officer. I am, I know how to lead large groups of soldiers into military, you know, training and combat. And, um, and as a senior captain, captain at this point, you know, if I was in special operations, um, company commanders who are, you know, in charge of, you know, a hundred to 200 soldiers, um, company commanders are majors. So I was never a company commander because I'm a, I am didn't make the rank of major, but okay. if I was in the large, larger regular army, I would have led that many anyway. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is I am capable and trained to handle a group of hundred people. No problem. Have done it a bunch of times, but because of the violence in December, I took extra precaution because I was honestly mentally preparing for a Boston, you know, marathon bombing oh, wow. style event in this crowd. And, um, and so I split up, um, those hundred people into groups of 10 and placed someone with experience in DC, somebody who knew the Metro and knew the area and could like go to a place that I told them to go because they'd know. Um, and I outfitted those, uh, leaders, those team leaders with trauma kits and I taught them how to use it. So each, each one of them had, you know, a little pack about this size with everything you would need, um, just to get to the next level of care. If say, for example, a backpack exploded next to one of their, one of their groups like legs, you know, cause the kind of rhetoric coming out of Antifa at this point was very, um, you know, made, hostile. made hostile and it made us, it made a lot of us nervous. And so did you discuss these concerns with everyone that decided to go? Like they knew that yes. you were concerned about this and that they were prepared and everything. Mm -hmm. I sent out emails in advance, letting everybody know, Hey, just let it re a reminder. You cannot conceal carry in DC. You can't bring a weapon into DC. Um, but the, uh, the other side, they want to hurt you and we've proven and they've proven that. So don't be alone. And I was giving all of these things and, and Oh, by the way, like you can back out, you know, cause everybody, I, I chartered the bus and then people paid me for their seats. You know, I yeah. didn't definitely didn't make any money on the event, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to, wasn't trying to. So um, in Antifa's like telegram channels and like their their other um, messaging signal groups and things like that, they put out, and I can send you screenshots, they put out that they were going to dress like patriots. Okay. And so in November, huge black block. December, even bigger. And they were like in different areas. So they were not all behind one police line. They were huddled up in a group of 50 on every other street corner. So it was more intimidating in December. So it felt more and more organized. January? Nowhere. Which is weird. Which means they were everywhere. Well, and, it's, and the fact that you even bring that up, because I know that in general, initially when it first happened, people alluded to that. They believed that that was happening. And for the most part, a lot of people or the news mainstream, um, we're saying that absolutely didn't happen or that that's a conspiracy theory. So I'm not saying that, I don't know if you have any 
evidence, obviously, because it's not like you went around. All the only evidence I have is screenshots from their groups because there yeah. are Patriot infiltrators in all of these Antifa groups. And um, and they sp- and there was even this one specific poster that said, like, we're cut off camo. And a, and a red hat, like explaining what a Patriot dress is like, which is funny. Which is a very, that's a stereotype, but okay. That's a stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> and so, at, you know, because of my training and, you know, my deployment experience and all of that, the entire day for me was up here when it comes to, you know, level of alert, alert. And yeah. I had what we say are your head is on a swivel. Yeah. It means like you're just this all day. And, and for the majority of the day, I had two octogenarians on each arm. So much, oh, for, goodness. so much for being, you know, an insurrectionist, worst insurrectionist ever. If that's how I decide to show up to battle with one 80 yeah. year old on this arm and one 80 year old on this arm. But I am very concerned for the safety of my people, um, care deeply about all of these, uh, wonderful patriots, um, and, and yeah, uh, I'm very happy that we got back and no one was hurt. And well, that was going to be my next question because you arrived there. I'm assuming you went and saw uh, the president or Trump, which at the time was still the president, um, speak. And yeah. he went on for a while because I know I've wa- I've read a lot of stuff, and so the argument or a lot of the claims is that he commanded people to go to the mm. Capitol. But at the same time, there was a lot of people, actually, if I'm not mistaken, the breach happened while he was on stage before he even said that. Is, is that correct? Okay. So I, I have so much to tell you about this. So first of all, um, to set the scene appropriately, you need to understand like that that day, January 6th was one of the coldest days of my life. Like I've done military training in Colorado, like it was so cold. The wind chill was so horrible. You're standing up on the hill right next to the Washington Monument. And, you know, as far as you can see in every direction are, you know, flags and people waiting to hear um, him talk. He was a little late showing up and he talked way longer than his scheduled time. Most people to include my group and myself started walking away before he was done. And here's, and there's, you know, he was long-winded, but also it was hard to hear. Like we are so far back, even though we could see on some of the jumbotrons that they had set up, you could see him talking. We knew he was talking. You really could only hear it when like the wind blew in your direction. You could catch a few words, at least from where I was sitting and standing. And I was standing with my back directly to the Washington monument, slightly up on the hill on the monument mm-hmm. itself. Um, and even, even then while I'm, while we're standing there and while he's speaking, there are people going through the crowds saying, we got to get in the Capitol on bullhorns. And I was like, that's weird. It sounded weird. And, and the main reason it sounded weird was because all three of these rallies, November, December, and January, they were all structured and organized by the exact same groups, several groups getting together, organizing, and they were structured the same. There was a rally in one place where there were speakers. Then there was the march. And then there was another rally where there's speakers. So there's stages set up at the beginning and at the end of the rally. That was the case for November, December, and the case for January. And um, and I'm not sure if you ever cut in photos what like or anything like that, but I'll send you the program for the day. I have never once seen the January 6th program with lists of speakers and the times when everything's supposed to be happening on any news outlet anywhere. I didn't even know there was one. There was a program. Yep. Yeah. It was on all of them, all of the organizers, social media pages, um, everybody that was, you know, had signed up. There was like different little um, signups going around so you could get updates on the rally, like weeks ahead of the rally. And um, everybody I knew, not just on my bus, like everybody in the crowd, everybody had one of these on their phones. I mean, it wasn't like they were handing them out but everybody had a copy of the plan for the day. So when the, the idea that everyone was rushing to the Capitol to go do something, there's a stage and speakers set up down there and people that left early were just trying to go get a good spot, Mm -hmm. literally. So people, and so, and that's what we did. So he's not done speaking and we start walking away along with a good portion of the crowd that also can't hear him. 
Yeah. Because we're freezing. We need to move. We're frozen solid. We need to move. We're going to walk the entire way down the mall, which for us with like the age of the people I was with, it took about a half an hour um, to walk from, from where he was at over there. And, um, and so the idea that he told people to go to the Capitol when in fact he did say go to the Capitol because that was the plan for the day. It wasn't like we were like, Oh, weird. Now we're all going to the Capitol. Wasn't planning on doing that. Well, and then, right. yeah. And, and the assumption was, is that going to the Capitol also meant going into the Capitol. So, and yeah. You- and that's not the case at all because we were expecting like, like it said in the program, like the last two rallies, this, that the speakers were going to be there on the stage set up down there in the designated area where there was a uh, a rally permit, you know, like mm-hmm. they had a rally permit. Well, yeah, in D.C., you have to have a permit for any of this stuff. Right. And a lot of people don't understand that. Like D.C. especially is very well first and experienced when it comes to protests and rallies and that sort of thing. And so usually nothing really happens there spontaneously except when you have the rioting or, you know, the, the counter protesting, um, is typically when there is more of like an issue, but in general, all of these organizations and all of these protests and everything like that, they require permitting. I mean, there were elected representatives scheduled to speak. Yeah. This was, this is, this was very organized, very professional and, each rally had gotten bigger and better produced from November to December to January. So it was, everything was going very smoothly other than the fact that the president was talking too long and And wasn't really aware of how everyone was freezing. I'm sure he wasn't, (laughs) Uh, but we were all cold. Um, And so as we're walking um, down the mall, like I said, it took us about a half an hour there is something else that happened that I saw that I can't tell you what exactly what, what it was, but I've never seen it reported anywhere. And that was a star cluster, which is, what is used it? in the military for as a signaling device. It kind of is like a bottle rocket without the like noise, you know, the okay. little noise. It's a bottle rocket looking thing. It goes up and there's like a little burst at the top. And in the military, those star clusters can be different colors that can signal different things. This is, okay, you don't have a radio, you can't talk to somebody else, but you're trying to signal mm, something like the initiation of an attack. So in retrospect, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised considering how far back we were on the mall. We left early and I saw the star and the star cluster happened you know, closer to the Capitol. I wouldn't be surprised if that was what was used, but I don't understand. Thousands of people must've saw this. So yeah. I don't understand how it never made it into the media. And there's just such a controlled narrative surrounding this. Um, it's all very um, contrived and doesn't at all jive with those that were there, what they actually experienced, what their, what their eyes told them. So we get to the Capitol and, um, there was definitely they whoever had breached had already done it by the time I came up, but we weren't, we were very close and um, there seemed to be some kind of scuffle with the Capitol police with some um, smoke grenade type thing, yeah. or some pepper spray. And we were like, Whoa, what was that? But then it just went away. And, and after that Patriots and Capitol police, who were wearing like bright yellow or bright neon green. So you could see them from way off. You could see exactly where they all were like on the, the, you know, different levels of the Capitol on the steps. Um, Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, there's the kind of ground level that is, you know, it's um, almost like I I would describe it almost as like a, like a, what do you call these amphitheaters? Like, yeah, there's different levels. You get to one level, then you have to get up a level and then there's the stairs. And then you have the massive um, entrance to where you could actually go in. It's like a big old porch, like the biggest porch you've ever seen. Right. (laughs) Um, And from where we were, you could see Patriots standing right next to Capitol police with no interference from the Capitol police. There was no, from after that initial weird thing that happened that none of us 
down on the ground could really interpret. There was no indication that they weren't allowing us all to be there. So from where you were at, like the infamous image of like the mob of people going in and climbing up the wall, like you, you can't see that from where you're at. Climbing up the wall. No, I didn't see anybody climbing on anything. The worst thing that I saw happen with my own eyes were people finding like men finding like a spot somewhere in the corner to urinate. Cause it was like, there's no bathrooms <laughs> because the mayor had made this rally more difficult. So she was shutting down different roads, confusing bus schedules, shutting down different uh, metro lines. And then she didn't allow the organizers to have any latrines. So you've got a million people there and you don't have any place to go to the bathroom. And the worst thing I saw was public urination all day long. My point is that you didn't actually see anybody like on the breach, like going up and going or scuffling, fighting. I saw plenty of people on the stairs. I saw nobody fighting. Um, I've seen... I've seen things since of yeah. fighting um, of people like pushing past Capitol police, but with my own eyes and I have photos and videos of that day. And, um, you know, I could show you kind of how close I, the closest we got as a group. Well, And the only reason I asked that, because a lot of people have a perception because the images that we've seen are those, that specific picture from up above at the steps. And so there's like an assumption that everybody experienced that and saw that. And I, I don't think and everybody knew that that was going on. Exactly. Um, and another it's just the size right. of it doesn't allow that. Like, that's right. why I wanted to ask right. that question. Like not and everybody that was size, in attendance. Like, yeah. No, go ahead. And if you're over, if you're over here on this side of the Capitol, like East, North, South, West, like this matters because you will have no clue what's happening on the other side. And this is where I should probably bring up. We did not have cell phone service. We were cut off. All of us, there was, it was either, and maybe it was, maybe it's an and and not an or, um, maybe the towers were overloaded with the number of people there because it wasn't like a hundred thousand of like Trump's crazies. Like we're, I really would say a million. I know people won't say that like, People aren't saying the word million, but I've been to the March for Life rallies. I was at the the November one, the December one, January one. There was in any direction as far as you could see was somebody part of a part of this rally. Now that if you take a picture at 4 p.m., that's going to look a lot different than the picture at 9 a.m. Yeah, for so, sure. You know, or 11 a.m. So I, some of these photos that have been taken were like ones that were people were already leaving. And also it was so cold. I can't explain to you how cold it was. Like people could not handle it. And they showed up, they listened to uh, President Trump and then they, you know, and they bolted, found, yeah. found a place to get, you know, get warm. Even groups, even people in my group went and found some, you know, a Starbucks to sit in, um, which wouldn't serve them, by the way, because they had red hats on. So, um, so yeah, you could not even really understand what was going on because you couldn't get a call out. You couldn't get on your, you couldn't, you couldn't get on your phone and find out what was going on. There was this, um, rumor that went around everybody, like someone's been shot. It's been, it's a girl. She's been shot. And that's Ashley Babbitt. It, that, that's what we found out later, but we couldn't yeah. find that. We, you couldn't see anything um, about what the news was putting out about the event. All I could see was the people around me. And for two hours standing in front of the Capitol, I had a black gas- gospel choir. We, we kind of hung out next to them because their music was so good. You know, like the idea that this is a bunch of white supremacist insurrectionists is insane. Um, it was a very diverse group. One of the biggest um, minority groups present were Chinese dissidents. They were frantically handing out pamphlets about communism as like, did you know that this is coming here? Like whatever. Cause they, no, and there has been a huge movement from them. You know, you, any kind of interview and stuff like that, they speak firmly about that because they see the precursors that are happening right now that, and, and we're still at a position that we can like, you know, pump the brakes or stop the train before it gets out of control. So they grab you and like, did you know about communism? I'm like, yes, I know. Like I am, but I understand, (laughs) I understand like their visceral reaction to these precursors, as you mentioned. So, but you, 
so you never, you got there, you got to that second stage and did you guys hang out there for very long? Did you end up leaving? Like, how did mm-hmm. your, your, once you got to the second stage, how did the rest of your day go um, before you guys left? Cause obviously I see you here. So you're not still there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mean I'm not in um, the Abu Ghraib <laughs> prison that, that in Washington, DC. I don't know if they've moved those guys yet or not. No, I'm not in um, solitary confinement um, yet anyway, although I am a proud future Gulag resident. If I keep, I saw that in your Instagram, (laughs) you are too, you you and I will be cellmates. Um, Yeah. So um, there was a point we got very close. I I had my group with me because I, like I said, we split up. Um, I'm, you know, reticent to say squad because that kind of has too much of a military connotation yeah. and they've already accused me of running a military operation, but I had squads, you know, that that's how I run things. So my squad, we got to a point and I said, um, if you go further than this, you're going against my guidance because I just felt like it was, the crowd was more uncontrolled. I couldn't see as well. And also right before I made that decision, some guy in, I don't know, he had knee pads and elbow pads on, if that tells you anything and like a tactical backpack, he, um, he gets right here and he yells into a bullhorn. I'll never forget it. Tip of the spear to station six, tip of the spear to station six. And I was like, what does that mean? What is, yeah. <laughs> what is going on? Yeah. And, and that could have been something nefarious or not. Uh, because frankly, it could be, it could have been a nut. It could have been someone who was trying well, I, to. Right. But I had, yeah. I've had, and, and, you know, I'll get lambasted for this, I'm sure, but I've had good experiences with like groups like the Proud Boys, like here in North Carolina, in some of our reopen rallies, um, they provided security and, and safety to those of us who are like there with our kids, you know, um, when, when Antifa is being very menacing or like, throwing stuff at us or whatever. I never had a bad experience, but I know that that group can attract fringe. It may have been them trying to do some kind of defensive maneuver. It may have been them trying to do an offensive maneuver. I don't know, but it it made you, it made you alert. It made you uncomfortable. I just said, you know, and there were, and there were people, everybody wanted to get closer and closer. And I, and when I was, um, I'm fine with like sit-ins, I'm fine with um, taking up space and like demanding to be heard. Um, Obviously I'm not fine with violence. And I didn't understand what the point was about getting any closer than we were. I felt like we had achieved our objective and being heard and being taken seriously. And we were, we were there. We showed them that we can't be ignored. And um, I didn't really know what the purpose of getting any closer was. We were already packed like sardines as close as we could get. Um, and then there was this one woman who grabbed, uh, one of the gentlemen that was with me, she grabbed him by the shirt and said, like, basically like you have no balls if you don't get any closer. And I was like, what is this? Like, we don't talk to each other like this. So, um, and there was plenty of people that I saw that were doing all the right things, um, picking up trash. I mean, the place was spotless. I don't know if you've seen some of the aftermaths of these BLM riots. Yeah. Like people cleaning up afterwards for sure. And after BLM, it's like a trash bomb went off and a literal dumpster fire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, No kidding. So, um, we knew that the, the mayor had, um, done a, uh, a curfew. She had announced a curfew. Um, we knew that, I think, I think like those automatic alerts were going off on people's phones, you know, like the national broadcast system kind of thing. But I never was able to get a call or text out the whole time. I was trying to call some of my other like squad leaders, you could say, and being like, where are you guys? You know, but we had already, I had the pre-arranged the day. Yeah. Yeah. We had pre-arranged when we would meet back up. We actually parked our buses outside of the city and took the Metro in because I, uh, based on the last two, the mayor was really just messing with people. And I didn't want people not to be able to find the bus. Like they made a bus move. So I said, we'll take the Metro in. And at least we, you can get the Metro out. You're always going to be able to get the Metro out. So just, yeah. So that's what we did. We met at a Metro stop. Um, and then we took the Metro out and met back up outside of, um, the city itself. So a lot of people are, 
in regards to, because you are retired now or retired, is that the right word or you're no, a veteran no, at I, least like I'm a veteran. Yes. Cause I, 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 I served for 10 years. So to be retired, you had to serve a full 20. My dad yeah. was retired. He served 26. So, um, I resigned my commission would be like the actual, um, terminology. And a lot, most people would, uh, would assume that you had, you resigned either because you had to, or because it was tied to January. Like what led to your resignation? Um, it's a good question because, um, most people don't know about my previous reprimand that I received in May of 2020. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in after, during the lockdown, right at the beginning of the lockdown, um, let me just kind of back up just like everybody else at the very beginning of all of the pandemic stuff. Um, I was concerned. Um, and mainly because I said, this is a bioweapon from China, right from the bat. I said, this is a bioweapon from China and they don't mind killing their own people. So I bet this is really deadly and I bet it is coming for us and we should be ready for it and we should be take precautions. And, um, but after about two weeks watching the news, as a psychological operations officer, I'm a literal professional propagandist. Now in PSYOP, we are supposed to target only foreign audiences and we really have to kind of jump through hoops to ensure that we don't um, accidentally influence expats who are still United States citizens living in country X um, that, we are be, that, we're, that we're influencing that area. Um, so I'm watching this and I'm just absorbing. I was glued to in front of the TV, probably like everyone else. <laughs> and, um, and I started kind of noticing all of the trends and keep in mind, like as somebody who has assessed and trained and deployed and led psychological operations, you know, well, your like, spidey sense are a little bit more up. You're much more sensitive to things than yeah. So the PSYOP process to me means something different than it may mean to somebody else. PSYOP means something different to me. To me, it's a process. We have seven phases. Each phase has sub steps. Like I can literally reverse engineer it, what they were doing and what they've done since. And, and I can show you like they're following this, you know, process. They're yeah. doing it step by step by step. This is how they did it. And you're talking about specifically and, the pandemic, like the messaging uh, of the pandemic right. or yeah, exactly. Okay. So, and this is all important because I started this group, this nonpartisan conservative acti um, activist group. It's very important. I say nonpartisan because as an army officer, it is against regulations for me to lead a partisan um, political group. Okay. As long as it's nonpartisan and it was nonpartisan. I, I didn't promote candidates, pro, uh, partisan candidates, um, I didn't, you know, um, speak deletriously about elected officials. Any one particular party or official. I was, we spoke about issues. Yeah. We spoke about the issues of the lockdown, the issues of giving up freedoms for safety, the issues um, surrounding, you know, free speech and um, rights to assemble and all of the things that were being violated during the lockdown, you know, the mask mandates and all of it. Yeah. So, and of course, keep this in mind also. And I, I pulled it out because, you know, I, I keep it close to me. Um, I took an oath. This is my original copy of my oath of office that I signed in 2012 to uphold support and defend the constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic. And as much as the, as the media right now, and maybe the current administration wants to, to think that domestic terrorists look like what January 6 looks like actually what that's designed for is to prevent what's going on with this government overreach. Yeah. So the reason why that's in the oath is because what domestic, what an, an, a domestic enemy looks like is government overreach. And the founders made that very clear in all of their, um, all of the documents that supported, supported the constitution. Well, and that's like kind of like another little element of propaganda in the sense that we've been conditioned to think of domestic as being like some activist militia that's up in the mountains or something like that. And mm -hmm. to no longer really even consider that the fact of the matter is, is that the government is made of human beings, human beings who have self-interest. And if they're not guided by their morals or their values, they too can, you know, go sideways just because you're in the 
military or law enforcement or any kind of government official doesn't mean that you can't do something against the interests of your own country. That's right. That's right. And and especially if you are convinced that it is in with the, within the interests of your country, yeah. even if it violates all the founding principles of your country, which is, I think, where we're at now. So I started this conservative group in late March. So right away, I knew that something was wrong. I, st- I get online and I'm trying to find like-minded locals that are, you know, to, to connect with. Um, it The group exploded. We were very active, but in on Memorial Day weekend in May, I I was looking for a way to honor my friends who've paid the ultimate sacrifice in the last 20 years of war. You know, not many servicemen or women don't know someone who lost their lives either in combat or to injuries or, you know, to suicide, really, which is another horrible epidemic in the military. So I was thinking, how can I honor them when we're just over here giving our freedoms away? Like it didn't even matter. Like their lives were paid for nothing. So um, I kind of channeled my inner like MLK, Gandhi literally did like research on kind of how they conducted civil disobedience in the most peaceful way possible. And so I said, there's no better way to conduct civil disobedience than to go to the public park, take down all the caution tape and play with my son, who's two. This is the if the incident that is tied into every article that also yeah. mentions that you organize to go as if taking down caution tape at a public park mm-hmm. is equally on par or somehow a primer to... Well, it, it sets the scene. It sets the scene saying that she's already completely fine with criminal activity. And of course they did. I was charged with criminal vandalism, which is ironic considering, and I told this to the police, which they didn't, of course, appreciate. I said, I'm actually cleaning up the litter. A vandal came here and put all this caution tape up and I'm a taxpayer and I'm cleaning it up for you. You are welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was banned from the park for a year and, um, and also I was given a court date. Um, and because of COVID the courts were all backed up and Iowa didn't have a court date until October. So from May until October, I was underneath military um, administrative action because until until the civilian side got cleared up, like until I was either pronounced not guilty or guilty and had like a sentence or a fine or something, that case is still open in the military. And anybody who's listening that's a veteran or active duty, they'll know what I mean. Uh-huh. I was flagged. I was flagged for the majority of 2020. I was still continuing all my activism work. So that event was mainly important because I, I forgot to mention, I live streamed it. <laughs> I did it on Facebook. It, it you know, it went kind of like mini viral, the local news, the state media picked up on it. Um, of course I did it to inspire others to resist and to defy the lockdown orders. I'm, I'm, there was, you know, I'm not trying to pretend. I mean, I kind of joked with the police that I was cleaning up trash, but I'm not trying to pretend the reasons I did it. Like I, I believe that what's going on is wrong. Um, I'm going to do something about it and um, I'll, I'll take the consequences. Uh, but this is what justice looks like, you know, when, when the law has gone too far, when the policymakers are breaking the law, the true law, the constitution that I swore an oath to defend. So that event is what ultimately led to, I, I'm a, I'm a, was it like a situation? Let me say this. Was it a situation of like, if you don't quit, we'll fire you. You know what I mean? Kind of, <laughs> you know how that happens sometimes? <laughs> right. So there's um there's something called a general officer memorandum of reprimand. And um, these are basically career enders, but they're all extra judicial. So there is a, something called UCMJ, Uniform Code of Military Justice. And um that is, there's like a court system where there's like lawyers involved and you get kind of due process. Well, the reprimand process is extrajudicial. So it's a way that they can punish you without having to deal with real rules because oh. they didn't, the, mili- the military didn't want to deal with having a constitutional discussion in a court of law. No, they yeah. didn't want to do that. So they didn't article 15 me. They, that's what that's called. When you, when you have charges brought against you that 
saying that you broke the, the law. UCMJ. Or, yeah. Yeah. The military code of justice. They didn't do that. What they did instead. So if they had done that specifically. Oh, it would have been on. Yeah. Well, you would have actually had to gone through a judicial process, like a due process, but because. Right. And then this- I, and then I could have my day. To, yeah. And we could have, and we could have a discussion that could then be appealed. And there's a process and there's at least a sense of justice where the, the general officer memorandum of reprimand, they have the same effect, especially for officers, but they don't have to do it. You can, a general can give you a reprimand for not liking your face. They'd be like, Miss Sadie, no go on the haircut. Let me just write this little reprimand up. And I've got those copies of those here too. Um, this is only a copy because I have the other originals framed in my house because it is the thing that I'm proud of most in my service is actually the reprimands that I received for doing exactly what I swore an oath to do. So that was my first uh, reprimand. I did end up getting a second just for good measure after January 6th. And um, even though I they opened a very large investigation against me that included the FBI, I was, I was investigated for domestic terrorism. I was investigated for sedition, insurrection, and even they even kept in their scope of investigation. Like, did I break like rules of my leave. Cause I was on approved leave when I went to January 6th. I wasn't like, obviously I wasn't in uniform. I wasn't, you weren't a wall or something like that. I you wasn't a wall. My, I told my, my supervisor where I was going. I told him when I'd be back. Um, all of that, because that's actually, I went above and beyond what you would typically do as a senior captain, keeping everybody informed because I did. I, since May, the previous year, I had a microscope on me. Yeah. So, um, and I can, I didn't, I didn't stop. You didn't stop. You didn't stop. What? I didn't, didn't stop after my first reprimand. I, I continued the activism work all the way until January 6th. But once January 6th happened and it got that international attention, that's when you had congressmen tweeting about me. That's when you had the secretary of defense coming down on my chain of command and saying like, you need to dishonorably discharge her to make an example. All of it was about making an example out of me and using me as the key vignette in the 60 day stand down that the armed services conducted against extremism in the military, which is a complete farce, which we literally do not have time for in this podcast, but I was used in as an example. And they, and they, even after they had cleared me of wrongdoing, they continued to use my name in the training given to 1.3 million service members. Or like what not to do or. Uh-huh. Even that's... after I was cleared. So even after they knew that I was not guilty of anything, they continued to use me as an example and do to this day. What, which just continues to peg or create like a fog of like guilt um, around you by continuing to use you in that way. I'm not so concerned with that. Like I'm, I'm not so concerned with, you know, my own personal stigma or some kind of smear of my reputation. Like I'm a child of God. I don't care what they say about me. I'm concerned about the fear that they've created within the military that will stop anyone in the future from standing up and, and, and keeping the military from being used improperly or, or keeping, um, you know, radical leftist ideas, it, you know, in. They don't they don't give you training in the Constitution and the military anymore, but they do give you LGBT uh, diversity training until you're blue in the face. So yeah. you can see that the priorities are not um, in line with our mission. And it's definitely not in line with what I would say the majority of Americans think are happening in the military. Well, and I think that is particularly I mean, the fact that you touch on that is particularly disconcerting in the sense that our last line of defense, like we think about the military and their purpose and the purpose is to protect the constitution, protect the United States of America from enemies, foreign and domestic. However, if the, the people that are made up of the military are as individuals are true last line of defense, because you, they can't like the military or the government can't act against the citizens if the individuals within that organization recognize that, no, this is a bad idea. I'm not going to partake in this. And so if you're conditioning these people just to follow along and not question, 
which I know there's, there's an element of the military that, you know, you follow orders and you go on, but at some point as individuals, I think we have a responsibility to know and stand up for what's right and what's wrong. And, and that just following orders isn't necessarily the out that some people think it is. Right. And of course, history teaches us what can happen when you just blindly follow and there's blind obedience, which is why we are supposed to be receiving training about the proper way to not obey an unlawful order. We're supposed to know what a lawful and unlawful order is, but we don't we don't know what that is anymore uh, because we don't know what the Constitution says anymore. So we don't know that this is like a, a gross violation of of the rights of American citizens or the rights of a soldier because on the first day of boot camp they tell you things like you're in the army now you have no rights or you you sold your rights away when you signed on the dotted line not true at all and I've written articles about it to to try to educate service members on what they are and what they're not allowed to do in uniform and the reasons why that there are limitations there's a there is a good reason why an army officer cannot lead a partisan group. It makes perfect sense. It's it's important for the sacred trust that the American people place on us for us not to take sides. You can take personal sides, but that's you out of uniform. But as soon as you are leading a group, if you're, you know, an officer and you're leading a partisan say like I am this I'm the president of this Republican club. Now now you're violating that sacred trust with you know, the rest of the American people who may not be Republican and who may take that as a threatening thing. And I understand that. Um, however, my second GOMAR, they did give me the general officer memorandum of recommend. It's called a GOMAR. They didn't find anything on me, but what they pegged me with was um, in your capacity, like your group might be nonpartisan, but when you went to January 6th, that was a partisan action, which is just of bold-faced lie. It wasn't a partisan action. It was an election integrity rally, something that all Americans care about. Um, there was a lot of things that were being protested that day. A lot of Americans on the entire spectrum were fed up with a lot of things going on in, in Washington. So yeah. they just tagged that on. At that point, I was just trying, you know, I said, okay, just pile on another Gomar. It doesn't matter. I'm already going to be resigning. And as soon as um, the investigation cleared, which took all the way until June. Um, as soon as the, as soon as it was June 14th, I got, you know, my honorable discharge out of the military. And funny enough, um, that was when my gag order was lifted. The, the moment that I was out of the army, my gag order was lifted. So on June 15th is when Tucker Carlson's documentary crew came to my house and we filmed. <laughs> so yeah, I do I do think that people to have a really good understanding of what's going on, at, not just in the military, but within other important institutions within the government, to go ahead and go on to Fox Nation and watch Patriot Purge. Um, Tucker Carlson did a, a three-part documentary. I'm in uh, episode two. Um, and I think people just the average citizen, the average civilian, so people not involved in government need to kind of be aware of what's going on right now uh, with forcing conservatives and any independent thinking person out of in institutions and positions of power, which is will eventually lead to a um, you know, very dangerous situation where these institutions and the military will be used just simply against political opposition, which we see this all the time in third world countries. Um, but um, yeah, that's, I mean, when it starts, you would think oh, never here in the United States, never here in America. And then you start like waking up and paying attention to things and you're like, holy crap, like maybe never is a little bit of a generous term <laughs> to be using in this case. So well, I'm going to wrap this up because we're at about an hour, but there is like so much more that I, I feel like we could talk for like another hour, like the idea of available for part two. I know <laughs> we definitely, cause I would love to also kind of touch on the culture of the military and how it's changed maybe while you were there and where the focus is shifted on mm -hmm. and, and like the whole psychological like practice, like I could literally talk about this forever. So, but I have something to do later. You have a child to take care of. 
our listeners probably have something to move on to also, but I would most definitely love to have you back for another conversation and, um, you know, talk a little bit more about freedom and just being aware and waking up. But if anybody wants to follow you, where can they find you? Well, I'm mostly using Instagram right now because one by one, the different platforms censor me or completely block me out. But uh, my handle is at Emily Grace Rainey. So head over there. I post all the time. I've, I've ever since getting out of the army, I've kind of become a homesteader starting a little business. So, um, and of course supporting my other half who's still in the military and still facing all of the cultural difficulties and the mandates, which we can talk about going on yes. in the military now. So I, I definitely have a really interesting view on some of this stuff. And, um, and I hope that some people, um, found it informative and helpful for them. Yeah, this is just an intro. Like Emily got to tell her story. We're definitely going to have her back for any kind of military information or I I will be touching base with you again. And if you guys want to follow her, her link is in the show notes. If you want to shoot me those documents that you mentioned, I'd be happy to include that also in the post in the show notes. So if you are interested in anything like that, check it out once this episode drops. It'll be once this, my tongue is like, blah. Once this episode drops, we'll have everything up on the show notes in the post at itsmissady.com. But thanks so much for uh, hanging out with us and sharing your story. It was fun. Thanks, Miss Sadie. Thanks so much for listening to It's Miss Sadie, honest conversations for freedom-minded women. You can find the show notes for this episode at itsmissady.com. And if you're loving the podcast, I would be so honored if you would go ahead and hit that subscribe button and leave me a five-star review. And if you would like to have conversations like this with other freedom-minded women, visit libertasisters.com, a community of women founded on the values of femininity, self-reliance, and freedom. You can also connect with me on Instagram at itsmissady or join my email list. Until next time, stay free and stay honest.